So in verse number 9 of Genesis 1, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And may the Lord bless his word as we have it read into our hearts today. You may see on the screen tonight a... uh, Uh, a necklace of beads. Now, the necklace of beads is very interesting. The man who put it together entitled his story, The Beads of Watangi, after the uh, Watangi tribe in New Zealand. But uh, it's a fictional story. But the way he told it was that each bead represents uh, a part of a, a Morse code letter. And if you take those beads, all several hundred of them, you read the letter I, the letter N, the letter T, the letter H, the letter E, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, he asks the crowd when he showed these beads, what do you think that, uh, the, that would you believe it if he said that that was randomly produced and he just put it together, and it just happened to coincide with that. And, of course, very few people raised their hand for obvious reasons because the odds against it are not very good. And when we think of odds and we think of probability, it's very important to understand that uh, in, in our lives and in the creation, this is going to play a role in our understanding of the creation. Now... If we go back here and uh, we escape here and we go back to uh, the laws that God has put into the universe, the laws of thermodynamics say that the first law of conservation, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. And the second law called the one of entropy, all processes involve a loss. So you can't even break even. You're always giving up something to get something. And even when you do something, there's friction, there's a loss of heat. You don't do it 100% uh, productively. So these things are laws of the universe that the Lord has established. And those laws are important because when we think of probability, and we get back to these beads, so to speak, and to the incredible process of what it would take for randomly these beads to show up in a necklace randomly, we start seeing that uh, what are the the chances that this would be at random chance. Now, the reason why they have dice there is that that the dice are almost a universal symbol of random things. And so we even play a lot of games, uh, even just board games, people use them. So there are 347 beads in that necklace. Now, there's only two types of bead, black and white. So when you multiply two, 
to the 347th power, you get 2.8669 times 10 to the 104th power. That's 10 with a, over 100 zeros. That's a giant number. It's so giant that you can barely even comprehend how much that number is. And I'm going to show you how significant that number is in just a moment. Because uh, when you think of statistical probabilities of things, uh, you should appreciate that we are walking miracles and the world is a miracle. And there's no way you can even completely understand anything at all without knowing that life is a miracle. So uh, scientists have determined that when you have a number that is beyond 10 to the 50th, that means 10 with 50 zeros or one with 50 zeros, uh, you have here something called absurd. They just, it's not even possible. They just throw it out because it's not, not only is it not probable, it's not even in the realm of, of things that we imagine to happen. So uh, a simple binary string of 347 elements, that's what that, that one necklace was. Binary meaning there were two parts and it has 347 parts. Well, let's consider another thing called the hemoglobin molecule in the blood. Okay, let's think about that and compare it and contrast it. Because remember, you've already said, and I've said when I first watched him to say that, he held up the string and he, he said, this necklace. Now, I just found it and uh, uh, it just randomly, I put all these beads together. It just happened to be that way. Nobody believed him for good reason. But let's think about the hemoglobin molecule. There are 574 elements from an alphabet of 20, not two. Remember, the, the necklace has a white and a, and a black bead. That's it. But in the hemoglobin molecule, there are 20 amino acids, which are on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read them all. But there's 20, and they all have a role to play in how the hemoglobin molecule works. Now, if you use that formula that you see on the screen, uh, which we're not gonna go through and do the math, but if you do that, you see that you get 10 to the 650 possible permutations that could happen with those amino acids and with all of those elements in the molecule called hemoglobin. Uh, 650, that's, that's a lot. That's incredible. Only one of them is hemoglobin. And if you change just one of those permutations, you get something called hemoglobinopathy, which is a, a disease which would hurt you. Now, to give you an idea how big these numbers are, since if you accept the scientific view that the world is 18 billion years old or 15 billion years old, according to their own estimate, only 10 to the 18 seconds have happened in the history of the universe. Think about that. 10 to the 18. That is small compared to these hundreds numbers we're talking about that would need to have happened. Only 10 to the 66 atoms in the entire galaxy. 10 to the 66. And only 10 to the 80th particles inside the atoms themselves in the entire galaxy. 
The probabilities uh, that 10 to the 50 is defined as absurd, and this 10 to the 650 is far beyond chance. We're talking about chance here. Now, if you start talking about deliberate things, obviously that changes things, which is all we're saying. What we're saying is that the complexity of just something like the hemoglobin molecule is impossible to happen by chance. So in language, uh, you have uh, the famous code that the Americans used in the Revolutionary War. One if by land, two if by sea. You remember Paul Revere's ride. Now, this happened at the Old North Church, and even the most advanced computers, if the British had had it, they couldn't have broken Paul Revere's code they, because they did not know the def defining of each of those meanings. They had no idea. So they could have put it in a computer, and there was no way they could have figured it out through a computer. And that's just a simple two-part uh, code. So there are many coding structures in communication. Uh, you have simple alphabets, which you know about. There's also codes that are error-detecting codes. You can detect codes that they actually, in computers, they can detect, hey, we've got an error. Then they have error-correcting codes that can actually go through and not only uh, detect it, but then correct the, the problems. This is why your computers have to be updated a lot, because they can determine an error and then they can correct it. And then they have an adaptive coding system, and that means that they can actually change over time to fit certain circumstances. And these would be, syntax means meaning. So the meaning of the Old North Church, that was meaning to the previous code. Okay, so the Old North Church is where these, this code was going to be. And uh, when they were looking, they had to look at the Old North Church. The, uh, there, were, there were lights all over the place in the city, but it was only in the Old North Church that could the code be read. So if you think about going back to the hemoglobin molecule, uh, we certainly see that that is beyond chance. But when we think of DNA, it is so much more advanced even than the hemoglobin. Uh, hemoglobin. For instance, the DNA code uh, has a three out of four error-correcting, self-replicating coding system. Okay, think about that. That's what's involved in the DNA code. There are over three billion elements defining the manufacture and arrangement of hundreds of thousands of devices within the cell. So your DNA that you have has three billion elements, not the hundreds that were in the string that I showed you earlier. It consists of unique assemblies selected from over 200 proteins, and each involves 3,000 atoms in three-dimensional configurations, all defined from an alphabet of 20 amino acids. That's the DNA code is extremely complex. And again, we are well beyond any idea that this could happen by chance. We're talking about advanced coding. We're talking about correcting. We're talking about things that are happening that are, well, uh, 
I'll show you in a minute how absurd it is to think that we can reproduce it. Now think about the bacterial flagellum. The bacterial flagellum, uh, flagellum is the tail. Now this diagram that I have on the screen right here of this flagellum just shows you some of the parts, but it has a tail. But, and, and also, uh, I will show you a video in just a, a minute about the flagellum. In fact, I'll just go ahead and play that right now for you. The amazing flagellum. In Darwin's Black Box in 1996, Behe spotlighted and made famous a number of really interesting discoveries that had been occurring in biochemistry and cell biology over the last two or three decades. And what, what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work the flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail, that functions like a propeller. And it moves the bacterium through liquid, enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of the turn and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. Bacterial flagellum is a true nanomachine, about 40 nanometers in size. It's amazing. I mean, E. coli, salmonella, which are kind of our model systems for the bacterial flagellum, can propel a cell about 20 lengths per second through a very viscous medium like water from these organisms. And you extrapolate that to human um, scale. 20 body lengths per second, six foot person, you know, times 20, 120, 120 feet per second. Mark Spitz or Phelps would be setting uh, records with this type of propulsion. It's hardwired into a, 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 signal, a signal transduction circuit that allows the bacterium to sense changes in the sugar gradient in the, uh, in, in the surrounding liquid. This signal transduction system is actually a short-term memory system where the cell is, if it's going in the direction of an attractant, a nutrient that it can use um, to metabolize, it follows that chemical gradient. And if it's a repellent, it will sense that and move in, in the opposite direction. So it's more than just this engine it's an extraordinary piece of nanotechnology. It's high tech in low light. And so uh, just by spotlighting these extraordinary pieces of nanotechnology inside cells, and the flagellar motor wasn't the only one, one by any means, Behe, in a sense, opened up uh, a window for people. He opened up the black box of the, of the inner workings of the cell and said, look, this is much more complex than anything that than, than anything that the early evolutionary biologists had envisioned. Darwin knew nothing of this type of nanotechnology in cells, and at the very least, we've got to come up with an explanation for this. So, as you can see with that, uh, the flagellum is unbelievably complex, and it is uh, 
Well, just shows you what life and how complex life really is. If we think about a leaf, we know that even a leaf is highly complex. And in this uh, third day, we know that the plant life was uh, created. Uh, and we'll talk about this in just uh, right now because uh, the plant leaf in particular is a very important set of systems that have a purpose that enable life to exist on earth. And it is living, but it enables animal life later on. So uh, photosynthesis is a two-stage process. There's two reactions, the light-dependent reaction and the light-independent reaction. And uh, what happens is a thing called a chloroplast traps light energy, converts it into chemical energy, and it has two types of molecules which have the abbreviations NADPH and ATP. The light-independent reaction is when the NADPH provides the hydrogen atoms that help form glucose or sugar. The ATP provides the energy for this and other reactions used to synthesize the glucose. So light energy causes the electrons in chlorophyll, that's the green part of leaves, to boost up and out of their orbit. Now the reason leaves are green is because the plants produce during the light, the, when there's the most light in the year, the green chlorophyll is present. When the light starts going away, it loses the chlorophyll and it starts turning to various shades of red and orange and things like this. The light of uh, the red spectrum light is being captured by the, the plant and uses that red light, but only the green is able to escape because there's so much of the chlorophyll. So this happens, uh, the, the, the electrons instantly fall back into place, releasing resonance or vibrating energy as they go, all in millionths of a second. So you see here that the, the best solar system ever created is the leaf because the light hits the leaf and then it hits and interacts with the chlorophyll and through a process of uh, atomic energy, basically, and they're able to create uh, the things that make the plant able to live. So the word photosynthesis means to build with light. And uh, each plant, used, most plants are sugar factories producing millions of new glucose molecules a second. So most plants produce more glucose than they use and store it as starch and other carbohydrates in roots, stems, and leaves. This is why animals eat them so much because carbohydrates are fundamental to living animals and they make us, uh, uh, despite how much criticism we give people who are on uh, high carb diets, carbs save and, and allow life to, to, to live. Each year, photosynthesizing organisms produce about 170 billion metric ton, tons of extra carbohydrates. That's 30 metric tons for every person on Earth. Talk about a lot of sugar. <laughs> That's a lot of sugar. Uh, if you look at this, when you see the red up here, I've got a little square. It's the P700, and this is a receptor. And as you go in here, energy goes into the chlorophyll, and then it produces the NADP, and then a hydrogen ion joins with it to create the NADPH, which is important. And then uh, a separate uh, uh, photosynthesis 
receptor that is sens sensitive to a separate frequency red level uh, uh, light spectrum uh, from the 700 uh, comes in and helps with the ADP uh, molecule. Now all that's two separate systems. You got system one and system two all within that plant. Remember, we're talking about complex things in a leaf. And of course, water, when you put water in there, water provides and works with the hydrogen right there. And then light independent reaction, known as the Calvin cycle, comes into play and you see CO2 gets added to the plant and ultimately sugar comes out of it, glucose and oxygen. And that is the, the simple glucose molecule. So you see that plants produce oxygen and sugar okay so the c6h12o6 is a glucose and then the animals take in oxygen and take in sugar but the animals produce co2 which didn't gets returned back to the plants so if you were to remove plants from the earth animals would die if, so the plants had to be put down first god put the plants in first Diddy has the animals. But if there were only plants and not animals, ultimately the plants would be imbalanced as well. So God has created a scrubbing system to make life dependent uh, in this beautiful cycle. Now, to get an idea of what, uh, let's think about the DNA for a second. DNA is a very long strand of information very long and the thing that makes DNA most incredible to me is the fact that it replicates itself uh, all the time in hundreds of millions of, of ways so to get an idea not just about the complexity of the DNA code with its 300 billion letters <laughs> think about that 300 billion uh, three uh, rather 3,000 or 3 billion letters, I should say, 3 billion letters. That's a lot of letters. But let's just think about the physics of how this works. So how, can, how many of you know how to fish? If you take fishing line, you ever got fishing line tangled? Well, that's probably universally true. Well, let's say that you take two strands of monofilament fishing line, 125 miles long stored inside a basketball that's a lot okay then you unzip it copy it and restore on spools at three times the speed of an airplane propeller without tangling can you do it can you do it not very easily can you the same things going on over and over and over again in millions and millions of times in every one of us, in every living thing. It's amazing. So uh, one thing that uh, scientists have discovered in studying the universe is that the universe has what's called the anthropic, uh, anthrop anthropic principle, the appearance that the universe was designed for man, that actually this universe is fit and balanced perfectly for us to ex exist. This earth exists perfectly that we can exist. 
To prove this, uh, if you look at a mathematical model of what we believe we know about the universe, there are hundreds of delicate ratios that if altered the slightest would render life impossible. So if any one of these things was just slightly different, we wouldn't be able to live. Some of, of the differences are as little as 10 to the 55th. In other words, almost no difference is allowable. Uh, an, an atheist named Paul Davies had to admit it seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's number to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. He doesn't even he doesn't believe, but it's out of sheer stubbornness because he he's even admitting it looks like it is created. So in the universe, there's four fundamental forces. You got gravity, electromagnetic forces strong nuclear force and a weak nuclear force. And the electromagnetic force holds the atom together, determines the structure of the orbits of the electrons, governs the laws of chemistry, forms uh, incl uh, include x-rays, radio waves and light, can overcome gravity on Earth, can dominate other forces down to the size of the nucleus of an atom. Gravity causes an apple to fall to the ground, keeps our feet on the floor, binds together our solar system, keeps the earth and planets in their orbits, prevents the stars from exploding, guides the galaxies in their motions. Strong nuclear force. It binds together the protons and neutrons in the nucleus of the atom. The balance between the strong force and the electromagnetic force limit a nucleus to about 100 protons. In other words, if you ever were in a chemistry class or in science class and they had the periodic table and you had to memorize parts of it or all of it, there's a maximum size that you can basically have. There are certain limits and 100 protons is about it. Energy released substantially greater than electromagnetic chemical force. That's why you can have nuclear bombs because the energy releases so much more. And thus, stars shine, which are essential for life. Our star, in particular. Uh, weak nuclear forces govern atomic instability and radioactivity. The disintegration of heavier nuclei can create heat, such as the decay of radioactive elements in the Earth's core or in a nuclear power plant. So these are four fundamental forces of the universe. Well, let's talk about gravi gravity. If it was just 1.4 times stronger, all stars more massive than our sun, by 1.4 times, they burn too rapidly and too inconstantly to maintain life-supporting conditions on surrounding planets. But if it was weaker, all stars would have less than 0.8 times the mass of the sun. No heavy elements could exist. If the electromagnetic forces if it was weaker, molecules for life would cease to exist. If it was stronger, molecules for life would cease to exist. If the strong force, uh, the strong nuclear force was slightly weaker, multi-proton nuclei would not hold together. Hydrogen would be the only element in the universe. If it was slightly stronger, nuclear particles would tend to bond together more frequently and more firmly. Hydrogen would be rare in the universe and the supply of various life essential elements heavier than iron would be insufficient. If the weak force uh, was larger, you would have no helium and no heavy elements. If it was weaker, all helium and overabundance of heavy elements. 
If you had the ratio of electron to proton mass was larger, molecules would not form, life would be impossible. If it was smaller, same thing. The distance from the sun, if we were closer, too warm to maintain a stable water cycle. If, if we were farther away, too cold to have one. If the surface gravity, if it was stronger, the atmosphere would be too much, have too much ammonia and methane. If it was weaker, the atmosphere would lose too much water. If the thickness of the Earth's crust was thicker, too much oxygen would be transferred from the atmosphere to the crust. If it was thinner, volcanic and tectonic activity would be too great. The Earth's rotation period, if it was longer, the diurnal temperature differences would be too great. That is, the world itself rotating, if, it was, if the day was longer, then you would end up with too much heat and too much cold. If it was shorter, the atmospheric wind velocities would be too great. If the axial tilt of the Earth was greater than it is, the surface temperature would be too high. If it was less, the surface temperature would be too great. All this has to have happened. The reflectivity of the Earth, uh, that is light reflecting off the Earth. If it was greater, a runaway ice age would develop. If it was less, a runaway greenhouse effect would develop. The Earth's magnetic field. If it was stronger, electromagnetic storms would be too severe. If it was weaker, inadequate protection from hard stellar radiation. Uh, the CO2 and water vapor levels. If it was greater, a runaway greenhouse effect would develop. If it was less, the greenhouse effect would be insufficient. Uh, let's talk about the third day for a second here. You know, the third day of creation uh, is interesting because in the first day, God said and the, uh, in the, that there was light and it was good. But in the second day, he didn't say the word it was good. He didn't use that phrase. Very ironic that it's not there. But on the third day, he does say it and he says it twice. So you get on Tuesday. Remember, the first day is Sunday. Second day is Monday. And the third day is a Tuesday. So Tuesday is considered a double blessing. And many Jewish people have weddings on Tuesdays because of the double blessing. Because what did God give? He gave uh, the, the seas, the dry lands, but he also got plant life, a double blessing. And so it was at, on the third day, uh, which is a Tuesday, that he did his first miracle. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And that it was on a Tuesday that he performed his first miracle. So there's a very interesting thing about that. Uh, somebody has jokingly said, uh, maybe the Lord didn't like Monday very well. <laughs> like many of us don't like Mondays. Well, there's a whole lot about water. You know, when he developed the water cycle, and even though uh, he's, he, cre he has this water, but eventually he's going to produce something called the water cycle. And uh, there's lots of biblical references to the water cycle in Ecclesiastes and in Job. And, and also there's references to the jet stream in Ecclesiastes 1, 6 through 7. Uh, he makes references to evaporation in Job 26, verse 8, and Ecclesiastes 1, 6 through 7, and Amos 9. 
He uh, mentions in the Bible the source of river water in Ecclesiastes 1, 6, and 7, and the fresh water springs in the sea in Job 38, 16. There are actually are fresh water springs in the sea. A lot of people don't realize that. And pathways in the sea. Uh, these currents and pathways are in the sea. Long before uh, Benjamin Franklin discovered the jet stream in the Atlantic Ocean, the Bible predicted and said this in Psalms 8, 8 and in Isaiah 43, 16. There's many allusions included about science in Job 38. And in Job 38, God does basically a, a test of knowledge for Job because he's trying to prove that he doesn't really know what he's talking about and neither do most people. But there's, a, there's allusions to the rotation of the earth in Job 38, 12 through 15, the springs and pathways of the sea in verse 16, the breadth of the earth in verse 18, the travel of light in verse 19, the dividing of light in verse 24, the source of rain and ice in 28 through 30, the universal nature of physical laws in verse 33, and, the, and electrical communications in verse 35. A lot of science in the Bible, just as a by, bypass thing. I mean, they're not, he's not even really worried about it too much. He just makes these little references that just happen to agree with true science, which I think is very interesting. So we look here in this scripture, and when you have here, God is preparing the environment, the dry land and the seas, and he's preparing water for everything so that people will have enough water. And he's got the plant life that he produces and he creates in such an amazing th way. And he's, he concludes it in verse 13. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Truly amazing, isn't it? The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is through uh, the Lord that this is possible. Now, I'm going to show you one more video. This has to do with uh, the complexity of our cells, because eventually we're going to be talking about uh, the animal life in uh, the sixth uh, day, including humans. But this video shows you some of this complexity, uh, just to show you what's going on in every single cell of your body. It's pretty amazing stuff. These are tiny molecular machines, and they are doing this inside your body right now. To understand why, we have to zoom out. Every day in an adult human body, 50 to 70 billion of your cells die. Either they're stressed or damaged or just old. But this is normal. In fact, it's called programmed cell death. But to make up for all these lost cells, right now, billions of your cells are dividing essentially creating new cells. And that process of cell division, also called mitosis, well, it requires an army of tiny molecular machines. So let's take a closer look. DNA is a good place to start, the double helix molecule we always talk about. This is a scientifically accurate depiction of DNA created by Drew Barry at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. If you unwind the two strands, you can see that each has a sugar phosphate backbone connected to the sequence of nucleic acid base pairs, known by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now the strands run in opposite directions, which is important when you go to copy DNA. 
Copying DNA is one of the first steps in cell division. Here, the two strands of DNA are being unwound and separated by the tiny blue molecular machine called helicase. Helicase literally spins as fast as a jet engine. The strand of DNA on the right has its complementary strand assembled continuously, but the other strand is more complicated because it runs in the opposite direction. So it must be looped out with its complementary strand assembled in reverse, section by section. At the end of this process, you have two identical DNA molecules, each one a few centimeters long, but just a couple nanometers wide. So to prevent the DNA from becoming a tangled mess, it is wrapped around proteins called histones, forming a nucleosome. These nucleosomes are bundled together into a fiber known as chromatin, which is further looped and coiled to form a chromosome, one of the largest molecular structures in your body. under a microscope in dividing cells. Only then do they take on their characteristic shape. Otherwise, the DNA is more strewn inside the nucleus. The process of dividing a cell takes around an hour in mammals. So this footage is from a time lapse. You can see how the chromosomes line up on the equator of the cell. Now when everything is right, they are pulled apart into the two new daughter cells each one containing an identical copy of DNA. Now, as simple as this looks, the process is incredibly complicated and requires even more fascinating molecular machines to accomplish it. So let's look at a single chromosome. One chromosome consists of two sausage-shaped chromatids containing the identical copies of DNA made earlier. Each chromatid is attached to microtubule fibers, which guide and help align them in the correct position. The microtubules are connected to the chromatid at the kinetochore, here colored red. The kinetochore consists of hundreds of different proteins working together to achieve multiple objectives. In fact, it's one of the most sophisticated molecular mechanisms inside your body. The kinetochore is central to the successful separation of the chromatids. It creates a dynamic connection between the chromosome and the microtubules. For a reason no one's yet been able to figure out, the microtubules are constantly being built at one end and deconstructed at the other. While a chromosome is still getting ready, the kinetochore sends out a chemical stop signal to the rest of the cell, shown here by the red molecules, basically saying this chromosome is not yet ready to divide. The kinetochore also mechanically senses tension. When the tension is just right and the position and attachment are correct, all the proteins get ready, shown here by turning green. At this point, the stop signal broadcasting system is not switched off. Instead, it is literally carried away from the kinetochore down the microtubules by a dynein motor. That's the walking guy. This is really what it looks like. It has long legs so it can avoid obstacles and step over the kinesins, molecular motors that walk in the opposite direction. Personally, I'm astounded by these tiny molecular machines, how they're able to routinely and faithfully execute their functions billions of times over inside your body at this exact instant. I'm also amazed by the scientists who were able to work out how
how this happens in such detail that we could create realistic depictions of them like you saw in the animations in this video. Well, this author does a good job. I mean, the man who's talking there, he goes on to say that, uh, and I don't agree with the last thing he says, because later he says that this gives us hope in the future that we can create these nano robots and do this stuff ourselves. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure about that one at all. You consider that. Uh, what is missing in all that animation? You got machines, you got a lot of work, you got signals, you got highly sophisticated things going at unbelievable uh, speed. Uh, what's missing? What did you not see? There's nobody there. There's nobody, but the things are happening. And yet it's happening. Think about that for a moment. We, we, we think it's something that a little vacuum cleaner that you just release on the floor can go, can actually vacuum a whole room by itself, supposedly. But this is far more complex. We're talking about constructing, deconstructing, sending signals, uh, communicating uh, within the cell at a microscopic level. Obviously, it is the Lord who holds us all together. It is the Lord. We are truly wonderfully made, aren't we? It's amazing what God has done. Perhaps you have a, a question uh, about some of these things. And of course, I'm not pretending to know how all this works either. I just, I'm amazed that we're, the more we study it, the pretty, pretty complex uh, thing called life is amazing. No one has to tell it to do it. It's doing it on its own, isn't it? Just think about that. That DNA code is being reproduced with jet engine speed. That's, that's very long. When, you, maybe not a, you didn't catch it, but when he said the DNA molecule is three centimeters long, but only a, a few whatever nanometers wide, that is very tiny. That's very long for something you can't even see without getting into some super microscopic things. Yes? Does it, um, it doesn't say anything like it's self-sustaining. Does it feed on itself? Or is it, how does it eat these? I mean, like well, you end up with protein. You know, people have said you've got to have protein to build yourself up. Proteins are one of the key engines and factories that's making this happen. So proteins are key. So as you have healthy proteins and amino acids, these things are part of the machinery working to help build. Uh, but so you, you, when you eat food into your body, you need to have a healthy dose of proteins and acid, amino acids, essential amino acids. You need these because they are used as the building blocks of life. And so the energy of each cell, it, there's actually separate factories within the cell to collect food that, uh, that it will take, particles of, of matter, and then other disposals to get rid of things that they don't need. That's in one cell. Well, yes, they do know that if you have uh, an unhealthy diet or if you are exposed to an unhealthy environment, this will damage your cells. So you'll lose more than, than the, reprodu the, re the reproduction rate. You know, you see these shows where they're out 
disrupted. And all say, we gotta get protein. We gotta get protein. And most of the time, protein means animals. Proteins, uh, again, the right amount. I mean, you don't want to overdo anything, but uh, certainly proteins are important because they're used in these cells. And, and then other things are important. I'm not going to go into all dietary nutrition today because plants are important too. Obviously, the first humans, they ate plants. We'll learn that later, but they, they, all the animals ate plants. Uh, any other questions or comments about it? So also notice that in the Bible it says that each plant reproduced according to its kind. So God set limits and he, he designed it to where the plants would bear fruit and they would reproduce themselves. So God directly made the plants originally and now he has got this thing working to where they will preserve their identity by reproducing themselves over time. And uh, there's one very important thing we'll learn about studying the biology, that is life study, is that I mentioned to you that things are going down to a higher place of entropy. We, we, we end up with more energy, we, we end up with the same amount of energy, but energy and, and in all things, things things tend to slow down. Any particular thing tends to lose energy over time. That's just the way it is. But the one exception to that is life. <laughs> life is something that is different because when you have life, life starts and builds itself. It builds and it gains more over time till it reaches a maturity. And then over time, it itself goes away. So. The Lord is uh, truly amazing, isn't he? Any, any other question or comment before we close? So the third day was when God gave us the seas and dry land and also gives us plant life, which is obviously going to be essential for every one of us.